Would you pray with me? We would pray together, Lord, that you would hold the cross of Jesus before our eyes and that this morning we would see Jesus Christ high and lifted up and that we would remember that through the mystery of your Spirit's power and working that you are present with us here. Meet our need. And we pray now, Lord, that you would Open our minds and hearts that we would not just hear, but we would receive it into our life, this life-giving word, and that it would speak to our need today. We worship you and give you all the glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I'm told that Mount Whitney in the state of California is the highest spot in the whole of the continental U.S. There is no higher spot uh, or mountain or piece of land in the lower 48 states. Mount Whitney is 14,490 feet tall. And if you had the opportunity to stand on the precipice of Mount Whitney, you would be able to see from that place a great panorama of the Sierra Nevadas, the beautiful mountains with their snow caps all around. And in the distance, you would see the lowlands of the desert plains that would pan out before your eyes. On one side of Mount Whitney, you see the crystal indigo and turquoise lakes that surround the base of the mountain glistening in the sun. And if you were to have the opportunity to stand atop Mount Whitney, you would be amazed at the grandeur of what you saw. And it would seem to you in that moment that there was no higher point in all of the universe. As you look on God's earth and you look down on everything below you. But if you were standing on Mount Whitney and would look down below you and look about 80 miles to the southeast, you would cast your eyes on what is known as Death Valley. And although Mount Whitney is a great mountain, the highest point in the U.S., Death Valley is the lowest point in the 48 states. It is 280 feet below sea level. And it is the hottest place in the country, with a record of 134 degrees in the shade. It is a desolate place. It is a place that if you were to spend very much time there in Death Valley, you would be dead. And it, it strikes me, I don't know if it does you, but it strikes me that here you have within 80 miles a huge contrast between the highest point in all of 48 states and the lowest point of these United States of America. Now you say, well, Rick, what does, what's the spiritual point you're making? It seems to me that Ephesians 2, our text for this morning, is a bit like that contrast between the heights of Mount Whitney and the depths of the Death Valley. In fact, I would urge you to take your Bibles and turn to Paul's letter to the Ephesians. Uh, Pastor Keith read it a few moments ago to Ephesians chapter 2 and look at it. We'll be reading it uh, 
again, just so that it can soak into our hearts again. Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 1 through 7. And if you know anything about Paul's letter to the Ephesians, you know that in the first chapter of Ephesians, he's been talking about the riches that are ours in Christ Jesus. And he prays that the Ephesian Christians would live daily in the reality of those blessings. But now, in the beginning part of chapter 2, Paul is going to take this all home and drive home a lesson. And Paul's basic premise is this. Here's what he's trying to say. That you and I, that the Ephesian Christians to whom he is writing, will never understand the riches that we have in Christ Jesus until we step away from that mountaintop and look down into the valley from which we've come. If you want to understand more profoundly the spiritual blessings that are yours in Christ Jesus, I believe that you need to first take a look at what God has saved you from. When you were living apart from Jesus, to remember what your life was like before you came to Christ. And this morning I'd like to walk you through the first seven verses of chapter 2. The first three verses will walk us through the valley, the pit that we have lived in for so long. And then in the next four verses of chapter 2, Paul will paint a picture of where Christ, by His grace, has taken us. So with that in mind, let me read for you again as you follow along in your copies of the Scripture, chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. Paul, writing to the Ephesians, says, As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we also were by nature objects of wrath. Now that's the valley. Now we shift to the mountain. But, because of His great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. Read that next phrase aloud with me, will you? It is by grace you have been saved. Will you say it again? It is by grace you have been saved. Will you let that truth settle in for a moment? You are not saved by your working. You are not saved by your good Christian efforts. You are not saved by your church attendance or by putting a bill in the offering plate. You are not saved by praying your prayers. You are not saved by having your daily quiet time. There's one thing that has saved you. Do you know what it is? It is the grace of God. There is no good reason, except out of love and mercy, that God should have saved us. It is a grace gift. He has saved you and me by His wonderful grace. It is by grace. You have been saved. And then Paul continues, And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with Him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages He might show the incomparable riches of His grace 
expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. And spiritually speaking, friends, from verse 4 to verse 7 is the precipice of the spiritual Mount Whitney. That is where God in Christ has taken us. Now, when you first read this passage, and especially the first three verses, you realize that Paul is throwing some really heavy punches here. Again, this is so important to Paul because I believe that he wants to get this point across that until you understand why Jesus had to come into this world to die such a cruel death on the cross, why he had to die such a bloody death, why he needed to have nails pounded into his hands and feet, that unless we recognize the hole from which we have been saved, which we were born into, we will never really appreciate the fullness of Christ's blessings on our life. I want to ask you today, you look so bored stiff. Are you happy in Jesus? Are you? Are you excited about serving the Lord? Do you realize, I, I know I'm, I'm getting on a soapbox in these last weeks, but do you realize what is ours in Jesus Christ? I don't think we do. We talk about it. We say it. We quote it. But are we living it out? Do you realize what is yours in Jesus? And my point this morning is that you will never fully appreciate what you have in Jesus until you realize that which from what I, the construction of that sentence is weird. That which Christ has saved you from. You will never understand it. So what Paul is saying to the Ephesians and to all of us is that all of us came from the same place. We were all depraved. We were all in a spiritual hole. We are, as the psalmist said, we were stuck in a pit. In miry clay, our feet were bogged down in sin. Do you remember what that felt like? To be bogged down in sin. To be walking not toward God, but walking away from God. Rebelling in every way. Do you remember that hopeless place that we were in before we came to Christ? And I know that people today don't like to hear about being depraved. They don't believe that. They feel that somehow we were born neutral with blank slates. And how we develop depends solely on the kinds of messages that are written on our slates by our families and our community. And if love is written on our blank slates, then that's how we will live. That's half true, but there's a part of that as false. Paul says that we were not born neutral. Paul says that we were born in a hole. That we were born into sin. We were depraved, theologians say. We were in a pit. We were hopeless. Now, I don't think I have to spend a whole lot of time proving that point to you. I hope not anyways. Because any parent of a two-year-old knows the truth that children are born depraved. You don't need to teach your child to be disobedient, do you? Doing wrong is hot-wired into our human nature. I know I didn't have to teach my kids how to take toys that didn't belong to them. My kids weren't so guilty of doing that, but they were guilty of biting other children. 
I remember when our boys were in the church nursery, some of their friends, I don't know why they've stayed friends with Jared and Justin over the years, but some of their friends every Sunday morning, Kathy or I would go to pick them up from the church nursery and we would ask the proverbial question, so how many children did they bite today? They were constantly biting other children. And I imagine that Chris McLaughlin or, or Matt Kelly or some of those other boys with whom they were friends still have teeth marks in their arms somewhere yet today. We didn't teach them to bite other children. Why did they bite other children? They bit because they, there was a part of them in original sin inherited. All of us are in that condition. Doing wrong is hot-wired into us. Chuck Colson made this point beautifully. Remember Chuck Colson? He was one of former President Nixon's chief advisors during the Watergate years. In fact, Chuck Colson was prosecuted in that whole horrible mess that we were all caught up in in the 70s. And during the Watergate hearings and during the trials that ensued, Chuck Colson went to his friend's house, Tom, knowing that one way or another that Colson would be spending some time in prison for his crimes. And his friend Tom said to Chuck Colson, Chuck, the only one who can help you now is Jesus Christ. And Colson admits in his book, Born Again, if you've not read it, you should. It's a classic. He admits in his book, Born Again, he said that Tom's uh, assertion that there was only one who could help him, was, and that was Christ, was confusing to him. Colson admitted that he was empty and he was tired of the scandal. But he realized, too, that all that he had done was what everybody else was doing in politics at the time. And in his book, Born Again, Chuck Colson writes, But that night as I left Tom's house and sat alone in my car, for the first time in my life, my own sin, not just dirty politics, Colson says, my own sin, the hatred, pride, evil, lust that was so deep inside of me, was thrust before my eyes. For the first time in my life, I saw myself completely unclean, completely trapped by my sin. And that was the beginning of the transforming change that God worked in Chuck Colson's life. And if you don't know the story of his life, today he is head of prison fellowship, and he is a great agent for the kingdom of God. But it started in that car alone where God, by the Holy Spirit, gripped Colson's heart and affirmed to him, asserted to Chuck Colson, that he was a sinner. Before you can ever appreciate the grace of God and the riches that are ours in Christ, you need to come to an acknowledgement that I am a sinner, both by choice and by birth. When you look in the mirror before you come to Christ, you must realize that that's who you are. You see yourself as corrupt. And until you come to that point, when you admit that you're in the pit, you will never cry out to Jesus to save you. Before someone can be saved, they first must be convinced that they are lost. People cry out to Jesus for all kinds of things. Help me. Heal me. But to call out to Him as Savior, you need to see yourself as spiritually corrupt. And if you've accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior, then you understand 
Two, that you will never understand or know the wealth of your riches until you remember how impoverished you were before you came to Christ. You'll never enjoy the mountain until you remember the valley from which God, through Christ, has brought you. And so Paul lays out his stunning indictment against humanity in these first three verses and shows our deep need for a Savior. The first thing he says is this, that we were dead in our transgressions and sins. To me, there is no more powerful or clearer statement on the sinfulness of man than these first three verses. And Paul says that when we were sinners, we were dead. We were dead. If you're a Christian today, that's a past reality. That's what you were. If you're here today and you're not a Christian and you've not put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, then this is your present condition. If you haven't come to faith in Christ, you are dead. I'm not talking about physically dead, though some of you look that way. I'm talking about spiritual death. You are spiritually dead. Ephesians 4.18 explains what that means. It means that we are alienated. We are at war with God. We are God's enemies. We are not physically dead, but we are spiritually dead. An unbeliever is dead to God. And we are born that way. We are spiritually stillborn. We are born as corpses. We are born as corpses. When you come into this world, no matter how healthy you are physically, you are dead spiritually. You might be the healthiest person in the world, but without Christ, we are spiritually dead. And this was the death that happened at the fall in the Garden of Eden. When God said to Adam and Eve, if you eat of this Fruit, you shall surely die. And what did they do? They disobeyed God as a result of their disobedience and their sin. They became subject to spiritual death. Spiritual, not physical death. Do you realize that as we sit in this room this morning, that all around us in the hour or so that we've been in this room, that all the time that we've been here, there have been radio signals whirling all about us. All around us. But I venture guess, unless you have a radio or an iPod or something sticking in your ear, that you haven't been aware of those radio signals, even though they're all around us. There are signals there, but because you have nothing, no receiver, you can't hear a thing. If you had a radio, you could. What I want to say to you is that God, through His precious Holy Spirit, is all around us. He's in this room. He's working. And if you uh, have come alive in Christ, you have a receiver. And you've been picking His signal up. And you've been aware that, that God is present here. And you've been re- I hope you've been rejoicing in His presence and the awareness that God is with us. But if you aren't a believer, you're not aware of God being with us because you can't pick up His signal. Why can't you pick up your signal? His signal? You can't pick up God's signal because when you and I were born, we were all born with dead receivers. Unable to understand, unable to appreciate spiritual things. We can't worship. We can't pray. We can't understand Scripture. 
or have peace the way God intends for us to have until Christ brings us to the end of ourself and we cry out to the Savior, Lord, help me or I die. And when that happens, and I don't want to get ahead of myself here, but when that happens, Christ makes us alive. Paul says we are dead in our trespasses and sin. Again, that's hard for us to accept. Even for some of us who have accepted Jesus into our lives. We can understand the depravity of men like Hitler and Milosevic and Stalin. But we don't want to think about that neighbor who's been kind to us and shared zucchini with us this last week. As being a depraved individual, they live such an upstanding life. But if that person is outside the fold of God, here's the point, they are spiritually dead. And so were you before Christ found you. And understand that dead is dead. There are no degrees of death. You are either dead or you are alive. Now, my question, and please don't answer this out loud, but answer it to God in your hearts. This morning, as you sit in that comfortable pew, even though you're living and breathing and your pulse is there, I think, are you spiritually dead or are you spiritually alive? There's only two choices. It's one or the other. Paul says, when we were down in the valley, we were dead in our trespasses and sin. And then he goes on and says, before we were in Christ, we were spiritually disobedient. He's saying we were walking away from God, living like the rest of the world, full of sin. We were not obeying God. Instead, we were obeying Satan, the prince of this air. Bob Dylan, the songwriter and poet, says that we all have to serve somebody. And it's so true. My question this morning is, who were you serving before you came to Jesus? You were serving the world. You were serving Satan. James 4.4 4 says, Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Let that soak in for a minute. Whoever makes himself a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. In Galatians 1, Paul describes the world as this present evil age. And what he's saying is that, that before we came to Christ, we were caught up in the world system, the world's values, a system that breeds selfishness and lust and jealousy. That isn't to say that someone who doesn't know Jesus is incapable of doing good, but it does mean that their goodness is not sufficient to be saved. I know lots of good people who are outside of Christ, who are spiritually dead, and unless God saves them, and this you may take offense at, but unless God saves them, they are bound for an eternity of torture and condemnation. We call it hell. 
And unless you come to faith in Christ, I don't want to strike fear in your heart, but announce the good news that you don't have to keep going that way. You don't need to remain spiritually dead. You don't need to remain with your receiver off and not understand when people come together that God is present with us. No, it can be different. But we, some of us, are in slavery to the world. We're in ruts in the road, driving down the road. Our tires are getting caught in the rut of sin. I now live with my wife in the country, and we're getting used to country roads, dirt and gravel roads. They're bumpy and they're rough. And I imagine this winter and spring that they will have ruts in them and that even though we intend to drive on the right lane because of the ruts in the road, we'll be dragged into the ruts. Some of you are living in ruts spiritually. You're a slave to sin. You're following the patterns of the world. You've bought into the value systems of this world. And you're in a stinking, rotten rut. And there's only one way for you to get out of that rut. And that is for you to cry out to the Lord Jesus Christ and say, Lord, save me, help me, or I die. Paul says that we were not only spiritually disobedient, but that we were slaves to Satan. Slaves to Satan. Wanting our own way. Ezekiel says that, that uh, about Lucifer, when he fell from his place as the archangel, he says that, that Lucifer, his great sin was wanting everything for himself. That he wanted to be the one who was worshipped. He wanted the limelight for himself. And so, my friend, every time we make an effort to grab the limelight, when we say, I'm not being recognized, I want more, whenever we resent others who are being promoted, whenever we covet other people's successes, whenever we are jealous of someone else's looks, we have that old remnant of of our slavery to Satan in us. I've analyzed it over and again. What is the anatomy of marital conflict? What is behind marriage fights? I believe it is selfishness. (laughs) I like your honesty, John. It's excellent. What is behind it? Selfishness. Listen to the discussion between a husband and wife. It goes like this. What about my needs? What about how I feel? The partner responds, no, what about how I feel? You don't meet my needs anymore. You don't fulfill me like you used to. You don't pay attention to me like you did when we were first married. What's that all about? Selfishness. Where does selfishness come from? Selfishness comes to our life before Christ. It's hot-wired into us. We don't bite our friends anymore, like my boys. But selfishness still comes through. It's part of that unredeemed nature in us. We were enslaved by the cravings of our sinful nature, following the desires of our carnal nature, our lusts, always wanting more. 
the problems with Americans today is this, that we never have enough. It doesn't matter whatever it is. We want a bigger house, a larger bathroom, another guitar, a faster computer, a faster internet, another pair of shoes, a higher high, more pornography. There was in an article in Psychology Today, a story about a girl who was wasted by too much booze, drugs, and partying. And her uh, psychologist, her therapist, asked her, why don't you just stop doing what's killing you? And the girl looked at her therapist in astonishment and said, you mean I don't have to keep doing this? Let me ask you this morning, why don't you stop what's killing you? There are things in your life that are killing you. Why don't you stop? If you are caught by lust, why don't you take the internet and the computer out of your house? If you are stuck with an eating disorder, why don't you get some help and ask God to help you? If you are stuck in a destructive relationship, Why don't you seek out a counselor or a pastor? Why keep going in that old rut? Why don't you just stop? Because some of us are enslaved by our sinful nature. And like that woman, we can't stop. We are dead. We're enslaved. And this is the hole that we've been rescued from. I must hurry on. I I want to go from the valley, the hole that we were in, and tell you that we can only know the riches of Jesus to the degree that we understand the pit we're in. So let's quickly move in the last few minutes that we have to the mountaintop. But now, Paul says, in the midst of that hopelessness come some of the most hopeful words in Scripture. Verse 4, chapter 2, verse 4, But because of His great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. That's what we were. By grace has saved you. He has saved you. He has given you life. He's forgiven you and he's put a new heart within you. He's made you a new creature in Christ Jesus. He's given you, he's replaced the old stony heart now with a heart of flesh. And and he's breathed life into you. The old has gone and the new has come. When you come to faith in Christ, you have a new heart and a new mind. And you are plugged into the vine. You are a branch in the vine, as, as the Gospel of John uh, puts it. And not only this, not only does He give us life, but He raises us from the dead. That the same power that raised Christ from the dead in that tomb in Jerusalem is the same power that has saved you, and that power is at work in you today. Think about it. Get your mind around it. That the resurrection power of Jesus, if you've come to faith in Christ, is at work in you. He's given you life, He's forgiven you, and He's raised you from the dead. You are no longer dead! You are now alive in Jesus. Start acting like it. You've been forgiven. Act like it. You've been saved by grace. Act like it. God broke into our brokenness and He's made us spiritually alive. Where once I was lost, now as John Newton says it, I am now found. 
where once I was alone, I'm no longer alone. Why? Because the Holy Spirit is now taking up residence in me. Once I hurt those that I loved, but God broke into my life, and now, through the power of the Spirit, I'm learning to love others even as I love God. Where once I blew it, now, because of God, I am forgiven. And you can really celebrate the salvation that is yours, but I, I, again, my point is this. You can't celebrate that until you really understand the depths from which you've been saved. Most Christians don't get it. They think they're still in the hole, even though they're forgiven. We are not in the hole any longer. Paul says, once you were dead in your sins and transgressions, you were dead. Now you are alive. He's forgiven you. Not only this, has he raised you from the dead, but he says he seated us with him. Who's him? Come on, who's him? Jesus. Where is Jesus right now? He's at the right hand of the Father, interceding for us. And Paul says, you've been seated with Jesus. You've been seated with Him. And that all that is His is yours, if you've been made alive. So the crux of the issue this morning is, are you dead or are you alive? Are you, are you living in the pit? In the valley, or are you living on the mountaintop? This is our condition. And the question that I'm begging you to ask yourself, and you don't have to tell me, and you don't have to tell anybody else but God, is this. When you look into the mirror, can you say without reservation that whereas once I was dead, enslaved, Walking far away from God. That's who I was before I came to Christ. Can you say, but because of God who is rich in mercy and grace, I've been made alive. I've been forgiven. He's given me life. And I'm seated with Him. And all that is Jesus is mine. Have you moved from the pit to the mountain? Charles Spurgeon once wrote this. I couldn't say it any better. If Niagara Falls could suddenly be made to leap upwards instead of forever dashing downward with its, from its rocky height, it were not such a miracle as to change the perverse will and raging passions of men. Conversion is a work comparable to the making of a world. The labors of Hercules were but trifles compared to this. All is child's play compared with renewing a right spirit in the fallen nature of man. And my friends, that's exactly what God in Christ has done for you. It is something greater than the making of a world. It is a Herculean event that God would take someone like me, mired in the pit, and lift me to a high place on the solid rock of Jesus. The psalmist said this, I waited patiently for the Lord. He turned to me and heard my cry. He lifted me out of the slimy pit 
out of the mud and mire. He set my feet on a rock, and he gave me a firm place to stand. He put a new song in my mouth, a hymn of praise to our God. That's what God in Christ has done for you if you've come to faith in him. Dead or alive? Pit or mountaintop? Enslaved or set free? It's your choice. Let's pray together. I thank you today, Lord, personally, that you have saved me. You forgave me, and you took this spiritually dead individual, and you made me alive in Christ. And I'm forgiven, and I have new life. And I'm not enslaved to the old nature, though, Lord, you're working it out day by day, helping me in this to make me more like Jesus. And today, Lord, spiritually speaking, I'm on the mountaintop. I pray for individuals in this room who have not put their faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. And if they're seeking to be alive and to be forgiven, I pray that, that, Lord, you will grip their hearts and make them to understand that it is possible for them, too, to be alive. That they would be able to pick up and receive the signal of your grace speaking to their heart even now. Bring the reality of our sinfulness before us. Help us to realize how lost we really are without Jesus. And then turn our eyes toward the Lord Jesus Christ and save us. It is by grace that we are saved. And today we celebrate the Lord Jesus Christ and his wonderful grace.